0: Elisha Hoffman was born in Pennsylvania in 1839. He grew up to become a Presbyterian minister and the author of over 2,000 hymns. Some of those hymns are in our hymnal today. We still sing them here in this church. Hymns like, Are You Washed in the Blood? I Must Tell Jesus. What a Wonderful Savior and Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. One of Elisha Hoffman's lesser known hymns, we used to sing it in this church, but it didn't make the cut in the latest hymnal. Is titled all on the altar and the first verse of all on the altar reads like this you have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase and have earnestly fervently prayed but you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid peace and rest like toilet paper And hand sanitizer seem to be in short supply these days so I'm going to play the pastor's prerogative card this morning and we're going to pause the series on parables if you received the updated sermon card you would have noticed that we left the last Sunday in May blank we did that on purpose because at least I was hopeful that by then we might be back together In worship I wasn't sure what I'd be preaching on that day so I left it blank the latest orders coming from the governor lead us to believe that we won't be worshiping in May although there's a possibility that we will be worshiping in early June and the elders are planning for that reopening and we will keep you updated but for now it looks like we're going to be at this for a little while longer so I'm going to take some time this morning to bring What I hope will be a word of encouragement to you not from the parables but from a psalm a psalm that has blessed me mightily over the years and I pray a psalm that will bless you it is a psalm about quietness and rest about peace and composure it is Psalm 131 Psalm 131 now as you turn there In your Bibles this morning I want to encourage you to mark this page mark this page in your Bibles and go here often if you don't already I further want to encourage you to take some time and make the effort to memorize this psalm now don't panic this is not Psalm 119 this is Psalm 131 there are only three verses I know that you can do this if you put the effort in and I know that it's going to pay off for you You will need this psalm. You need this psalm now, probably, and you will need it in the future. So memorize it and hide it in your heart so that you can access it when you do need it. Say, the next time you're at the grocery store, or while you're sitting around waiting for your stimulus check, or when your kids start acting more like your spouse's side of the family and they're starting to get on your nerves, recall this psalm. The Bible tells us that we should hide the Word of God in our hearts, and in so doing, that we will not sin against Him. Being able to recall the Scripture in those moments when we need it is a way for us to inject the peace that we require into lives that can easily become chaotic and seemingly out of control. God promises to keep in perfect peace the mind that is stayed on Him. So, Psalm 131 is our scripture for this morning. It is a psalm of David. It describes a man, a child of God, who has, by faith in God, found composure and rest. He's satisfied in life, he's still in his spirit, and it is well with his soul. Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word aloud this morning. In that first verse of Psalm 131, we see that David has had to put off a few things. We find a few things that he's had to deal with in his life in order to find the peace that he is currently enjoying. These are the instigators that set themselves up against the calm and quiet that he was looking for. You might say these three, three things in his life uh, are what are causing the most static, what, what are causing the most interfere, interference, making the most noise, the things that keep him up at night. And they are a proud heart and haughty eyes and taking on too much. A proud heart. David says, my heart is not lifted up. My heart is not proud. The message paraphrase sums up this thought this way Lord I'm not trying to rule the roost and I don't want to be king of the mountain can you say that when it comes to your own life that you're not trying to rule the roost and you're not trying you don't desire to be king of the mountain we are prideful by nature and we don't recognize it but pride is is a regular source of the stress in our lives pride is the undercurrent of the dis-ease that we often feel. And ironically, while pride is one of the greater noisemakers in our lives, it's oftentimes the hardest thing to pinpoint. But I know I have a proud heart when I seek to live independently. I know I have a proud heart when I imagine myself to be autonomous. I know that I am proud when I act as if I am entitled when I react to every threat to my independence and my autonomy and my entitlement, and I find myself in a constant, never-ending battle. Does that sound familiar to you? We are watching this play out every day. It's in front of us, and sometimes it's inside of us. We want to govern ourselves, which, by the way, has never really led to anything good besides, uh, well, really never anything good, (laughs) just anarchy. Remember the time of tumult in Israel's history, known as the period of the judges, described in Scripture as a time when everybody everybody did what was right in their own eyes. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes, the result is usually bedlam. We don't want to take direction. Somehow we believe that how we live and what we do is our business and our business alone. We don't take into account that for every action we engage in there's a reaction we don't take into account the idea that we're not living in a vacuum pride is fuel for selfishness it makes my happiness the highest ideal it says that I love myself and doing what I do pleases me more than anything or anyone else How does that fit with giving preference to one another in honor as we're commanded in Scripture because of pride we act as if we are entitled one of the phrases that the proud heart repeats is I deserve we might not say it out loud but we would harbor that thought in our hearts it's often present in our thinking I deserve this and I don't deserve that You may be wondering whether or not that applies to you and there's a test that you can take this morning how do you feel when you don't get what you believe you ought to get how do you respond when you don't get what you think should be coming to you how do you feel if you don't get the respect you want if you're not appreciated the way you want to be if you're not applauded these disappointments these sort of disappointments leave us stewing in our own juices and they have their origin in pride a proud heart is the first contributor to chaos That David has wrestled to the ground that David has put out of his life I my heart is not proud he says to God the second characteristic that David notes which lends itself to a restless soul is described by him as haughty eyes you see peace and contentment come when our eyes are not raised too high when uh, we are not in pride thinking too highly of ourselves and not in judgment looking down on others now you might believe that you don't do that that you don't judge other people and I pray that that is true but I also want to challenge you this morning to be honest and maybe to listen a little more closely to your thoughts And then see if you might change your mind. Because we are often more judgmental of others than we realize. And it's it's never been easier to be this way. We have never been more connected to one another, nor ever more exposed to human folly. Just listen to the so-called experts sounding off all over the place. And listen to how they speak of those who disagree with them it's very easy to have haughty eyes to be judgmental of others isn't it and to the extent that we are this way we'll never find rest for our souls you see when we are haughty no one measures up when we are haughty everyone disappoints and it's a horribly dissatisfying unsettling way to live the third disruptive habit David jettisoned in his quest for calm and quiet was a practice of taking on more than he could handle. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Now what are these great and marvelous things that David is talking about? Well, we don't know. We don't get the details from this tiny psalm. There are only three verses, and he doesn't go into them. He doesn't go into them precisely for the reason that it doesn't matter. You see, things too wonderful and things too marvelous or too great for him are apt descriptors because on any given day, what looms large in front of us, what perplexes us in this life, is bound to change. And that's our reality right now, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Stuff that used to be simple is all of a sudden quite complex. Our expectations are constantly changing and hard to keep up with. Mundane tasks can become daunting. Routine functions have become overwhelming. What once was normal, the stuff that we never thought twice about, now, all of a sudden, it's great. Now, all of a sudden, it's too much. You know, if you're feeling this way right now, and many of you are, you are not alone. Very little feels right right now. Because very little is right. And very little is normal. Life has become exponentially more difficult. There are many more unknowns than knowns in front of us right now. Those things are hard to handle. But David has found a way to handle those things. He has figured out his lane. This is what he's done. He's figured out his lane and he's staying in it. David acknowledges his limitations here in this psalm. He's not detached. He's not disconnected from life's difficulties. He's not escaping them. He's not pretending they don't exist. He's not sticking his head in the sand. He has just come to realize that sometimes we expend our energy in ways that are wasteful or in ways that are not helpful, in ways that do not help us. Today we would call that spinning our wheels. Sometimes we just spin our wheels, right? We ruminate and we speculate and we agitate our souls. We we occupy ourselves with things that are too great, too wonderful, too marvelous for us. Things that we just don't understand. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon identified the common consequence of most of our worrying. When he said, such strange creatures are we that we probably smart more under blows which never fall upon us than we do under those which do actually come. Now, Psalm 131 is not condemning us for being inquisitive. There's nothing wrong with seeking knowledge. There's nothing wrong with asking questions, trying to understand what is going on. But what David is saying is when it's over my head, I don't occupy myself with it. When it's more than I can handle, I don't dwell on it. Can you say that? Is that true of you? The word occupy here, or exercise, depending on what translation you might be reading, means to walk. So what David is saying here is, I don't walk in, I don't wallow in things that are beyond me. I do not try to do or grasp what is humanly impossible. So how about you, my friend? Are you trying to do what is humanly impossible? Are you trying to match, for instance, your pre-pandemic pace of life? One article I read at the beginning of this said that we should expect to function at 50 to 60% of what we're used to. And that actually seems reasonable to me. And that seems to be somewhat true to my experience. If you try to do too much these days, you're setting yourself up for failure. You're setting yourself up to be frustrated. You're setting yourself up to be self-condemned. David, in attaining a calm and a quiet soul, has stopped trying to do what is humanly impossible. And I would suggest that you take a page from his playbook and dial it back a little bit and change your expectations so that you're not trying to do too much. What is possible or impossible for any of us is going to vary from person to person, of course. But something that is universally true is that no one, no human, can control all the variables. None of us is in control. And the more that we act as if we are in control, the more pressure we put on ourselves and the more agitated and the more irritable we are going to become. But notice here in the psalm, David is not in control. And you know what? He's comfortable not being in control. He's comfortable not being behind the wheel. Look at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Note here that David has taken the initiative to do this. It's not something that came easy to him. It's not something that happened overnight, all right? This is the life of discipleship. This is what it is to learn and be transformed by God over time. David has identified the parts of himself that are getting in the way. David has identified the way that he's thinking and the way that he's acting that often cause him to be upset. And he has systematically gone around to those things to deal with those things. He has figuratively pushed the mute button on all of these noisemakers in his life. Pride and a critical spirit and grandiosity. He's quieted those things and as a result, he himself is quieted. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So we have seen in our study of the parables that Jesus often drew from common experiences to illuminate heavenly truths. And here David draws on a familiar and a very tender image with a picture of a baby who is quiet and content, whose belly is satisfied with mother's milk, No longer fussy, no longer upset, no longer needy, no longer demanding. David has calmed and quieted his soul. Other translations say, I have composed my soul. I have composed my soul. And the root word there that we translate quieted or composed, it means to level. It means to equalize. David's soul is tranquil. It is tranquil like the ocean lying down after a storm passes. Such tranquility, by the way, and according to the scripture, is never going to be the experience of people who do not know God. Isaiah says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Which ought to lead us to ask a question, Well, then who is peace for? And the final verse of Psalm 131 tells us, it comes to those whose hope is properly fixed. Now, hope is powerful, but we need to know it's also dangerous. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred, hope delayed, hope drawn out, hope that doesn't seem to be fulfilled, it can be devastating to us. Admiral James Stockdale was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, the highest ranking military officer in the Hanoi Hilton from 1965 to 1973. He survived 8 years and 20 torture sessions before his eventual release. When asked how he managed to survive, he said, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. When he was asked about those who did not make it out of that Vietnam prison, and if he had any sense as to why he did, why they didn't, Admiral Stockdale replied, oh, that's easy. They were the optimists. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. When hope is placed in arbitrary markers, and those days come and go with no change, It can sink us deeper and deeper into the pit of despair if we let it. When we place our hope in certain outcomes and strong desires that we have, which amount only to wishful thinking, and they fail to materialize, we can become despondent, we can easily become depressed, we can even become angry and bitter. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And false hope is no better. The TV commercials say we'll get through this together. But there are 63,000 families in the United States and 234,000 around the world who would beg to differ. Because the truth is not everyone is gonna get through this. Platitudes and empty assurances might be well-meaning but they're not helpful because they're not truthful. They are, listen, they are the narcotic that numbs the pain and the vulnerability that we hate. The pain and the vulnerability, the fear and the sense of helplessness that is designed to move us to the eternal remedy. The true and unending source of hope. We do not need Deion Sanders telling us, we'll get through this, baby. I promise you that. Because he can't back that up. Because he has absolutely no power to make that come to pass. We need the hope of Christ who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me shall live, even if he dies. We need the promise of Jesus who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We need the reminder of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, who tells us nothing, no thing shall ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We need the power of God Himself, who says, in unrelenting trials, My grace. Is sufficient for thee beloved we will most surely be disappointed if we place our hope in our ideas of how things ought to be or by when they ought to be a particular way or in a specific resolution to life's challenge within any given time hope properly fixed is not hope that hangs on a desired outcome of our own manufacturing. It is hope in a faithful God. And so David shares his secret for finding peace amidst pressure in verse 3 of Psalm 131. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. When? When? Now. <laughs> now, O oh people of God, that's what he says, O oh Israel, O oh people of God, hope in the Lord now and always. And that, my friends, is the key to the calm and the quiet soul. In the midst of an ever-changing world, place your hope in a never changing God.